Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 182. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, what is going on, all you unstoppable restaurant professionals? I can't wait to get started today, but before we do... We need to thank our sponsor, and today's sponsor is On Deck, a business you can trust. With over $2 billion in loans delivered to date and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, On Deck is changing the way small businesses get financed. To explore the small business loan options that On Deck offers, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 182 and find the links in the show notes uh, that will take you right over to On Deck to get started. All right, now enjoy today's show. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Sarah Gavigan. Sarah, are you feeling unstoppable today? It's a Monday. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get through it, I promise. All right, so Sarah Gavigan is a graduate of Arizona State University. Gavigan has always been an entrepreneur at heart, and she pursued that entrepreneurial spirit, matching independent artists' music into commercials. Somewhere in her 20 years living in Los Angeles, she developed a passion for Japanese ramen. Today, she's exercising these passions as the founder of Little Octopus, Otaku <laughs> Self, and Pop Nashville. Uh, this is just a huge aerial view of who you are, what you're all about. I can't wait to get your story uh but before we do we need to get that motivational inspirational ball rolling and i didn't warn you about this uh with a success (laughs) quote or mantra so what do you have for us today Mm. it's a quote from uh, a movie called la femme nikita a long time ago uh there's been many iterations of the movie but this was the original by luke basson and um there's a quote where an older woman is trying to teach a younger woman how to navigate the world. And she says, Nikita, complacency has killed more people than all the diseases in the world. Mm. What is it about that's, that quote? That's that's really, yeah, what is it about that quote? Like, Reflect on that quote and what it means to you and how it resonates with you. Just... I think it's very easy to stand still and think that the world is going to come to you, mm-hmm. to be complacent. I think our society teaches us that if you're good, if you're smart, that everything will come to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that quote reminds you that if you want something, you have to go and get it. You absolutely do. You have to go out and grab it. And uh, you have clearly done that in your life. I mean, researching you was like a roller coaster. You're all over the place with your career, but you're successful in every place you go. So I'm really excited about the advice you're going to share with us. So, I mean, talk, talk to us, I mean, about your why, your purpose. Uh, why did you get started in this industry? Where did it all start and you know, what drives you? Um, I've always been really driven by food. I would say that the making of food, um, who I'm making it with, 
who I'm serving it for, it was always at the very top of my mind. So when I was in the music industry, working 80 hours a week full time, the only other thing that I did other than family was plan meals with my friends and have parties and dinner parties and mm. have extraordinary, you know, cooking experiences, either in my own kitchen or other people's kitchens. And that was truly my full-time hobby. And I couldn't learn enough fast enough. So I'm basically an obsessed home cook who jumped the fence. <laughs> but it sounds like your your driving force, your passion is just making other people happy, which is such a common uh, why for so many people. I mean, just to, to to have that ability to bring people together and to provide hospitality. And it sounds like that's what you were doing long before you ever opened a restaurant. Yeah, in many ways. Um, I don't think that I knew that I would love the industry the way that I do. I mean, I've always been a connector. If mm-hmm. I had to use one word to describe myself and all the different modalities and things that I've done in my career, what I'm good at is connecting things and connecting people. I can usually see things, um, you know, uh, a little further down the runway than most people can, or I can usually see something coming. Um, one thing advertising really taught me was how to spot trends and how to get in front of them. And with with ramen, and, and also it's, it's being in the right place at the right time. So when I moved here, there was ostensibly no Japanese food at all that was, you know, authentic or coming or being cooked by someone that really cared about its origin and how it should be made and, and where it's from. Awesome. And so ramen for me became, I, I, I felt lost without it. <laughs> it seems so strange to say that. But after 20 years of going into ramen shops, by myself or with my family and having that enjoyment, that 15 minutes of silence and eating that bowl and getting to the bottom and literally, yeah, you feel full, but something changes. My emotions change. And if I go in and I'm feeling a little bit low or grumpy or hungover or just (laughs) not motivated, I don't know, that bowl of ramen would change that for me. And so I was mesmerized by the power of that. And when I came here and I missed it so much that I had to start making it. I had to learn how to make it. And that's really how the whole quest began. Wow. That's awesome. And tell us about the time Sarah, when you just knew that this was going to be your career, were you like, was there a transitional moment where you went from the music industry where you just knew that, you know, you're all in, like, this is your passion, this is what you love, you want to share this with other people? Can you bring us to that moment? Sure. Um, it was it was definitely the very first pop up that we did. Um, it was on September 29th in 2012, and I had. Um, a chef named Eric Anderson, who's a very accomplished, very talented chef, who at the time was at the catbird seat, who really, no pun intended, was the one that pushed me out of the nest. He's the mm. one who's like, you got to do this. Just set a date and go for it. Because I, I was waffling, you know, I, and I knew that it was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. But it was just kind of miraculous how cooks and people came together. I paid no one. Uh, they all came to to learn and support and be a part of this because they felt my passion and they wanted to be a part of something like that. And I really underestimated just how hungry people were for something so passionate here. And I think that was the the secret to our early success, but it was the first night. um, We, (laughs) we very foolishly decided to sell um, three seatings 
And um, so my very first night as a professional chef, I did three seatings turns of 75 people. Oh, wow. So we sold every single, it was, it was nuts. I sold, we sold every single ticket and there was a moment where, and and I knew everyone who was coming. Like I had either literally spoken to them on the phone or, you know, knew them personally. And there was an older couple, the gentleman had served in the Korean war in Okinawa. And he came with his wife and they sat down and I brought them their bowl of ramen. It was the first time that I took a second to like take a deep breath and look at what I had done and look around and see the full dining room. And I watched this gentleman, you know, get in front of this bowl of ramen. He knew what he was doing. He had had ramen before, clearly in Okinawa. And he took a sip of it and then he took a bite of the noodles and his hands fell down onto the table and his eyes just closed and his neck went back and it was like the memory bell success and <laughs> it was so powerful that oh it sounds like it. it i get like super emotional when i think about it there will never be a review or anyone giving me any kind of accolade that could amount to that moment because if i can ring a memory bell that deep for someone with something that i create then game over. I've won. Wow. That was an incredible moment just bringing us through that moment. I felt like I was right there standing next to you, seeing this expression on his face. But that's what it's all about is to create happiness. You get to create happiness in this line of work, which is so rewarding. And it sounds like you feel that reward. And I can't wait to capture more of your stories because you are a great storyteller. And on that uh, topic of you being great at things, what are your if factors? If you could narrow it down to just a few things, and I already have some notes here, like spotting trends, spotting talents and others, and being a great storyteller. I mean, are there any other it factors you want to share with us, characteristics, habits that you think contribute to your success? Well, I came through an industry that was all about team building. So in film production, um, roles are very distinct, even though you're working in a highly creative world. Um, But you have a title and you know exactly what your job is and people stay in their lanes. And that creates um, the ability to work at very high speeds and work very creatively. So I basically, that was burned into me through 20 years of working in that industry. And I've taken the construct of that and I've reapplied it to the kitchen and reapplied it to building teams inside a restaurant. And I'm very untraditional about the way I hire people and the way we find people and train people. Um, we've definitely had to work with a much younger team than most restaurateurs may if they are working in cities that have you know, been harvesting the hospitality industry for decades. Nashville's very new to it. So by nature, there's just not a lot of people here that are in it for a career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a stopping point on the way to something else. Exactly. So how how do you get a team together? How do you motivate a team that may have long-term goals that lay outside your organization to do the best that they can do while they're with you? And it just really, I think, comes from that personal touch. You have to know every single person that works for you. And a lot of restaurateurs will say that they think that that's pain in the ass. And, you know, <laughs> as they grow and they have more and more people that work for them. But um, I truly believe that unless you know, if someone comes to work for me and they're a host 
or hostess or a server, if I have an understanding of what they want out of their life and they have an understanding of what I expect from them and there's mutual respect, then you can get the best from one another. But if not, I, I feel that you can't. So I think that it's a real balance for a lot of um, chef owners to because you only have so much energy to get through a day, right? So how are you going to allocate that energy? And if you're a chef, a lot of it has to go to your kitchen. A lot of it has to go to your food. But still having time for the people that work for you is everything. Wow. Awesome stuff. And, I mean, to summarize, um, I think just that it factor for you is seeing – and it's funny that you said get in your or stay in your lane because literally my last guest, Ben Falecho, his his success quote or mantra was stay in your lane. I can't make this up. First time on the show yesterday, and it's being mentioned again today, but it seems like you're good at finding out what lane people – you know, from listening to you, what lane people should be in, but you're you're good mm-hmm. at finding this because you care enough to get to know them and to gather that advice, and that's why it's so important, like you said, just to know your people because you can leverage those strengths just by listening to, you know, who they are, what they love, and what lane they belong in, and uh, great stuff. Yeah. Any other if factors you want to share with us? It's an old Donnie Deutsch quote, keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I really try to stick to that. Anytime that I'm asked to cook outside of my own kitchen or anytime, you know, when, when we go to big, you know, festivals and events now, we feel very honored to be asked to cook with all these other chefs. And, you know, people will come and they'll do really complicated dishes. And every single time we do it real simple. And we feel that that being able to give people a wow factor in a really simple way is, I believe that's our our hallmark as a restaurant group. We're really trying to introduce people to concepts of food that are delicious, but simple. It's Mm -hmm. not, we're we're not magicians. We're just presenting beautiful, simple food. And you, you just do such a great job at making people happy, too. And I think if you make your goal simple just to, to make people Thank happy you. and you forget about all that other stuff, but just, you know, center yourself, say, like, our goal is to make people happy and just focus on that little thing. Keep it simple, like you say. You can get a lot done. And I'm going to add one more it factor because you mentioned it earlier with, like, just, you know, taking risk and uh, people think things just happen. But you make things happen and you're – you mean – you just you grab opportunity and you go out and you you take risk and I think that's something that's worth uh, mentioning as well. Well, I think that you you can't embody fear. You know, you can't. You have to look at success as failure. Yeah. <laughs> it is they are one in the same. So, and it's yes, there can be colossal failures, but if you accept that there's going to be a little bit of failure every day, if you accept that there's going to be a little bit of pain every day then you can breathe deep and get through it and learn from it. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever learned from success. They learned from failure. So fail fast is is our mantra on an everyday basis. If we find something that we want to try, we try it. We analyze it quickly. If it's not working, we're done with it. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a dish or a new arrangement in the dining room, it's just you've got to be present and Take that information back as quickly as you can and then fail fast and get on to the next thing. On that topic of failures, this is perfect timing. Share a failure with us, a time where you did fail fast and you did move on and what you learned from that failure. 
When I was in the music industry, my job was to find music and present it to the buyers. And in the case, the buyer would be the ad agency or the brand. And then they would choose one of those tracks and place it in their commercial. And there was a very high sum of money that was exchanged for the use of that. Um, at one point, we thought that we could automate that mm. and create an online database that would house all of our music, all of our clients' music, and that would ostensibly not totally take the person out of the situation, but enable us to increase volume because it's a very high-touch industry. Mm -hmm. And this was in, um, like, 2002. Okay. So we were way wow. ahead of our time. So we, we built um, – I hired um, a Japanese experiential company to build the site for me. Okay. And it was way ahead of the curve. Wow. And like it, it, it just it, it didn't take. It was too soon, and people still really wanted that human touch. Mm -hmm. They really still wanted to talk to me. They really still wanted to interact with me. They did not want to get on a computer and do a search. Mm -hmm. And so what that taught me is that some things have to stay in the customer service realm. They can't be automated. Awesome. So it was, it was a, not a cheap failure by any means. But it taught me a tremendous amount just about accepting where my talents lied in making my clients happy and understanding what they needed. And that that communication back and forth was vital to the deal. Absolutely. But if I took a computer, yeah, to try and cut that portion of it out, it would lose its soul. I mean, I think that's just a really valuable lesson to take away, especially for us in this industry, because it, like this industry, it is extremely high touch. And so mm -hmm. many people try to, like, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, when you have a successful concept and you want to make another, uh, you know, a duplicate, where you're like the beginnings of a chain, right? And all of, a, yep. all of a sudden, like, you start diluting that brand and that image because you can't, you can only spread yourself so thin. And people... The things that people loved about your original concept were likely you and the people that were there, and you can't spread that. Um, I mean, is nope. that? Do you want to add anything to that? No, I mean, I believe that that's really true, and I think that in it, you know, today where we are as a society, um, this is boom towns right now. Mm -hmm. Not just Nashville, but many other places. You know, people, um, money is everywhere. Banks are lending, people are building, people are building new businesses. Hopefully it'll stay this way for a very long time. But we've been here before and it's crashed. And so, you know, looking at, I think, the, the industry overall and can some people replicate their great restaurants? Yes, they can. And mm -hmm. some people are extremely talented at doing that. Not everybody is. And quite frankly, very few are. So it's definitely with, with caution that we proceed forward in trying to build a restaurant group and do it with personality and human touch. And it's really all about the people that you hire mm. to help you create that experience. Absolutely. It's people that are on your team that represent what you're trying to build. I love. I, are, one, you, are you sure you didn't look at my questions there? Because you're touching on so many different things. <laughs> <laughs> I did not look at your questions. <laughs> one group that I think is doing it really, really well that I have a tremendous amount of respect for is John Besh's group down in New Orleans. Oh yeah. Um, you know, John Besh has been around for a long time, but he's just started this concept with Aaron Sanchez called Johnny Sanchez, which mm -hmm. is like a really young, amazing Mexican Latin um, taqueria style 
experience. And, and a lot of these chefs that have been in fine dining are going towards um, fast casual, you know, mm-hmm. like everything that's kind of moving towards fast casual, which to me I find really, really fun because you're giving a higher quality food in a more casual experience mm-hmm. that can have more personality. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I really do look up to Bash and his group, and, and I have friends inside that organization that I lean on heavily for advice quite a bit. Um, Alon Shia is another one of their chefs who just opened his Mediterranean place, Shia, and Pizza Dominica down there. They just have something really special going on. Well, you have to check they, out three episodes ago. I had Octavio Montilla. Octavio Montello oh, yeah. on the show. Yeah, awesome episode. I think it was They're like great. 177, but totally an amazing restaurant group. We can learn a lot from them. Yep. Sorry, keep on going. Yeah. No, I just, um, I think that um, it's definitely one of those things that we think about every single day when, you know, ideas grow on trees, right? Anyone can have ideas, but to actually execute those ideas, to make them into something. It's really unique. It's really incredible. When you look at well, like what Roy Choi has done in Los Angeles and the empire that he's created for himself, and to be able to be that kind of a personality. When I was in Los Angeles doing, um, I took my kitchen out there to do a little bit of ramen research, and we stayed at the Line Hotel, which is his place. And it was a Friday night, and he was in the lobby having drinks, wow. seeing what was going on. And, and, somebody- and I, I really loves that. Yeah, and so many people in this industry, one of the really successful ones I've noticed, are so willing to talk if you just ask the questions and they'll just like just connect with you. I mean this this podcast is living proof. Uh, like the people are willing to That's share. Great. Yeah. So we're going to move on. Uh, we've crushed the first half of this interview. You've given us great advice, but before we dive into the second half of this interview, we need to take a minute to thank our sponsor and today's sponsor is on deck. If you have been in business for at least one year, have a hundred thousand dollars plus in annual revenue and have a 500 plus personal credit score, you meet the minimum qualifications to get a small business loan through on deck anywhere from five thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars over a three to twenty four month payback period one of the things we learn on the show is that you need to scale and you need to stay fresh and to just constantly make small improvements and grow over time with your business is a great way to do that to learn more, head over to Restaurant Unstoppable slash 182, the show notes this episode, find the links, and click through. And I have to remind you, please use my links, because that's how I keep this show free to you. If you're looking for a small loan, check out On Deck, use my links, and thank you in advance. All right, back to the show. And you kind of touched on it just a little bit, but the first question on the second half of this interview in the speed round is on the topic of getting capital. You already said the money's out there. You can get it. So what's your advice for people listening uh, who are looking to start that first restaurant? Like, How did you get the capital to get started? Um, I would never be where I am right now had I not taken um, the time to do this as a pop-up first. Mm. Um First of all, I had never worked in the kitchen before. I started my own pop-up. That's crazy, right? So yeah. no no bank or investor in their right mind would have given me money at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would have – that money would have been very expensive. So what happened is that through two and a half years of doing pop-ups, I was able to raise my value. My sweat equity grew every day. With every pop-up that I did, my sweat equity got better. My P&L got better. And by doing that, I was able to gain the trust of the community 
And with that came a few investors and a few banks. So by the time we signed a lease, um, we had options. And in order to get a certain amount of money, it cost me vastly less in equity than it would have if I had started from scratch. So I, I believe that doing, you know, doing it in this way, starting as a pop-up, literally created value for my company. Absolutely. I mean, and that was, I have to say, one of the things that really drew me to getting you on the show was with your experience with a pop-up. And I think, you know, it's like you mentioned, like there's just such a little overhead to get started. And I feel like almost anyone can get in there uh, with a concept. And you also, one thing too, uh, when you go into these pop-ups, you're surrounding yourself with like-minded people, people who mm-hmm. are potential investors and you're getting your concept right in front of them. That's just such an amazing way to network. What do you think about that? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, seeing the people that would come into these events, um, and I mean, our events were kind of a spectacle because we would sell tickets just a couple of days before. We mm-hmm. were announced just a couple of days before. Um, if if advertising taught me anything, it taught me that scarcity is a tactic. <laughs> and we used that tactic to our advantage. We also were the only ramen shop in any form in Nashville. So people were literally hungry for it. And so it was it was an untapped market and we would sometimes serve up to 450 bowls in one day wow so what film production taught me um was how to be prepared and how to move fast and how to organize a team um where basically you've got one day and it's showtime so i had cooks and chefs that were helping me that helped me with all the things I didn't know, my pars, um, you know, how to produce this, this food, like literal production of 450 bowls, um, you know, and then the crazy stupid things that we learned, like, you know, we would go into a coffee shop and create a kitchen and we were working off of um, induction burners. Well, you can't get water to boil on an induction burner. So it would blow out everyone's electrical everywhere oh, we went. So it was so much trial and error that we had to learn over and over and over again, which is how we ended up in this strange defunct restaurant um, that used to be called Steve's, which is now called Pop. And it was a giant restaurant on the top floor of a weird mini mall in East Nashville. And it was, it was really like a gift from God. Someone, a friend of mine told me, I said, I've got to find a commissary kitchen. Like I literally have Cambros spread across town and everyone's walk-ins. I can't do this. And <laughs> she said, Hey, there's this old weird restaurant in East Nashville that, that my friend's a pastry chef over there. If you want to split the kitchen with her, I'm sure she'd love to you know, split the rent. I'm talking a 1500 square foot kitchen. I mean, this kitchen was built to do 500 covers a night. Mm-hmm. And this other woman and I shared it. And so that's how I was able to continue to do the pop-ups for two years is my commissary was big enough that I could stage 450 bowls and then move all that food across town and set up. Wow. Then eventually I partnered with the owner of the building. And that's how pop was created. So all along we knew that the ramen shop was not meant to there, but we did a year, five days a week. Otaku served five days a week at Pop, and then we had all different kinds of other pop-up dinners. Um, local chefs, local cooks, um, world-class chefs, um, 
two Michelin star chefs. We we ran the gamut in in a year and and had some really amazing people come and cook there. Yeah, I think that's another great thing about pop ups too. That's worth mentioning is you can bring so much. Uh, you can kind of, it's kind of like a blog or a podcast when you have a guest on your show, you pick up so many more listeners or so many more fans when you have that oh, space yeah. that other people can come in. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, grabbing the, those people who are, you know, coming to see this one person or this one chef, but then they find out about what you're doing and now you have a new fan. And I think it's just a, such a, a great way to get the word out. Um, which kind of brings me to the three questions I had on this topic that I wanted to ask you coming from David Luch, who's one of my listeners. So David, if you're out here, this is for you. And that's the, the question is, how's the, you know, how do you get the word out when you're first getting started? And I think it sounds like it's just, just do it. And over time the word gets out, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I was lucky because I was in a place that, um, you know, five years ago, um, I would say that online marketing, um, be it through Instagram or Twitter or whatever, was in its infancy stages here. Mm -hmm. So I captured that very quickly, and I realized that Instagram was going to be my tool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pictures of ramen get people hungry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so is <laughs> you that, your, that your tactic, just taking the pictures of the food, or did you have any trick using Instagram, like any like little like secrets you want to share with us? There really weren't too many secrets, but um, aside from making very diligent, <laughs> just make really good food. Uh, that's the secret. <laughs> exactly. I was very diligent about building an email list. So mm. anytime we had an event, um, every ticket holder was put into the database, and every time we had an event, we would bring that clipboard around and and ask people to join the list. And we made sure that everyone knew that the only way that you would be able to find out about tickets is if you were on that list. Uh, so now my list is over 5,000 strong, and I can communicate with my community through that list. And I make it very, very widely known that, that you guys are my VIPs. Yeah. You're on this list. You're the first ones to know. That's a and, and that has really helped me to um, be able to communicate directly with my biggest fans. That's a great example of not – pushing but pulling people like pulling them along making them want to give you their information because they're aligned with what you're doing they want to be a part of it and you can pull that information out of people but you have to think of a funnel to do it and it sounds like you know uh you provided that funnel to get that those email addresses by pulling them by pulling their interest awesome stuff um and yeah, and I think people underestimate how important it is to build a relationship with your community, especially when you own a restaurant. It's like, you know, you are uh, you're providing a, a service to your community. Mm -hmm. And what role what role do you play? Who are you going to be? What are you going to do? What are you going to bring to that community? Are you, you know, employing people from that community? Are you helping charities in that community? Restaurants have a big responsibility to to be more than just a restaurant now, I think, which is oh, yeah. hard for a lot of people. And we just try to look at it as a whole and make sure that our our actions are, are seen as, as very holistic in the sense that um, I'm not just here to have a restaurant to make a lot of money so that I can go, you know, vacation in the Caribbean. I, I love what I do, yeah. and um, 
I feel lost when I'm done in my restaurant. Yeah. I go away for a couple of days and all I want to do is get back. You know, I love how so, you me- I love how you mentioned that you have that service to your community. I think that it's always been that way, but there was a period of time where we got away from it just creating these like simple just like put food out as fast as possible with no emotional connection or engagement. But now people are realizing that we got away from that, that serving the community, but we're coming back to it now, but it should have always been that way. What do you think about that? I think that the South um, is a good example of that, especially here in Nashville. I mean, Nashville has a very interesting background with restaurants mm-hmm. in that um, it's never really been a dining out town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got biscuit house biscuit houses everywhere in Nashville because breakfast was really one of the main meals that people would eat out. Other than that, people cooked at home. People had dinner parties. People entertained at home. That's what the South was really about. Mm. So not um, in, when the restaurant... In, exactly. And, and when that... Um, when the restaurant industry started here in the 70s, it was mainly um, a test market for some of the larger chains in America. So Nashville was a corporate food town. And I think that that really messed with its early years as being seen as a, a place where you want to go and eat that has great restaurants. And it probably even stopped a lot of restaurateurs from coming here. Um, but you know, in the last 10 years, that has totally changed. Mm-hmm. I would say even more so in the last eight years, you know, when um, chefs like Tandy Wilson opened City House and, you know, you've got a hotel with a restaurant in it, the Hermitage and the Capitol Grill that really was the epicenter of of the food movement here and still is very much so. I mean, Sean Brock came from there. Tandy Wilson came from there. Um, Tyler Brown is still there. Most of the great chefs that came from Nashville, came out of that kitchen. Really? And so, yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting. If you go back and kind of look at it. But it is a very, very small community here. So I think that once people saw that independent restaurants could succeed and that the city was was open and interested in seeing more individual points of view when it came to food, that's when things began to change. Wow, some interesting stuff there. Um, you provided some mm-hmm. extra knowledge and resources for us, and I appreciate that. We're going to get back to the the uh, question before we move on. I have two more quick questions about pop-ups from David I want you to uh, help us out with. Uh, okay. The second one is how do you find locations? And it sounds like you found the, your locations by creating them. You went out and you, like you did with your most of your life, or you just created an opportunity. Yeah. Is that the best way to do it? Well, I mean, I, I was very fortunate in that um, it, it was a swell for me. And, and so people knew what I was doing. Local press was covering it. <clears throat> and so it was really, I had people coming to me and saying, hey, I've got this coffee shop. Would you want to come do it here? So it, was, mm. it, was, it went both ways. You know, sometimes I would find a location and be like, hey, I'd really like to serve out of here because I'd like to be in this neighborhood for a while. And eventually I ended up at the National Farmer's Market serving um, three days a week. And, and that was a, a great location for us because it was central and it was open and it allowed us to kind of be more consistent. That was the beginning of the consistency for us. We said, mm-hmm. you know, okay, we've been doing these like, you know, monthly or bi monthly pop ups all over town. Now we want to get something more 
kind of semi-permanent. So, so that's when we started doing three days at the farmer's market. So it sounds like in the beginning, you just have to get creative and pretty much do it wherever you can. And over time, yeah. once you get the word out there, opportunities will come to you. Yeah. And I think, you know, from a financial standpoint, I would say to anyone that's interested in in doing pop-ups, I would stick to a very simple mathematical formula, which is you never want to give away more than 10% of your profit mm-hmm. to the to the place where you are hosted. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're pro- you're going to probably not make money. You're probably going to break even mm-hmm. when you're doing pop-ups because there's just so many unknowns. You can't really control your cost quite as well as you would in a restaurant where you're running it every day. Yeah. There's always last-minute purchases that kind of blow that extra profit but and negotiating with someone try to negotiate a flat rate and make sure that that flat rate is below the 10 percent of your sales mark because that's the way that you're going to survive and anybody that is that is asking you to come in and do something in their space hopefully they're doing it for themselves as much as they're doing it for you and that's where the equal opportunity lies if they're doing it to make money Yeah, you do, you don't you don't want to go in with an operator that's like thinking that they're going to make bank on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a great thing. People make if everybody makes money. I've definitely done events where an operator of the or the owner of the restaurant or the bar is like, man, that was a great night for us, and that's a bonus. But you can't go into it that way. You've got to go into it thinking only about what you're serving and how people are going to be experiencing that. Awesome. So you you have to spend more to to make that happen than you would in a regular restaurant scenario. So uh, one last last quick question. I think you kind of touched on this with the the cost being so unpredictable. When it comes to locating tables, chairs, plates, and et cetera, should you go to rental companies where you have a fixed, where you you can know what the cost is going to be, or are there other options we should know about? Well, this is the reason why you would want to go into an existing restaurant. And Mm -hmm. this is the reason why we created Pops, because – Pop is ostensibly a fully functioning restaurant, front of house and back of house. So what it does is it enables you to come in. You've got plateware, flatware, servers, got everything you need. Mm-hmm. So that that percentage that you're paying to the house is for for literally the rent of a restaurant for one day. Now, in the case of ramen, obviously I had to order ramen bowls. So there was an investment that had to be made mm-hmm. in in that case, a specialty item and things that you'll you may have to buy if you're doing something in particular. But the 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 great thing about working with another restaurant, say um, you know you find a restaurant and their night off is on a Monday, so that's your that's your point of opportunity. And if you say you know I only want to do <clears throat> 50 covers a night. And um, I could probably handle like one and a half turns. Then you know you're looking for a restaurant that's got 25 to 30 seats mm. and, you know, a smaller kitchen. And if that is what you're looking for, then they're going to have all the plateware and everything that goes with that. Interesting. So I would pay the rental fee to the restaurant to use all of their things. Awesome. You're renting Good. the restaurant. Great stuff. David, I hope you found value in all this advice that Sarah is sharing with us. And we're going to get back to the usual flow of questions now. Thank you, Sarah, for going off track like that. We really do appreciate it. Sure. Uh, So the next question I have for you is on the topic of hiring people. Mm -hmm. What questions are you asking? What are you looking for? 
Um, like I said earlier, I think it's foolish to believe that anyone that, you know, everyone that comes to work in a restaurant is looking to be in the hospitality industry for the rest of their life. <clears throat> so you have to kind of strike a balance. And my first question to anyone that comes to work for me or wants to come to work for me is what's the long-term plan? Mm. What's the goal? What's the dream? Where do you want to be? And once I can understand what it is that somebody wants out of their life and I say to them, great, let's help you get there. Awesome. But while you're here, you work hard for me, and I'll work hard for you. And, it. you know, let's face it. I live in Nashville. Many of my servers are musicians, and many of the people that work for me um, are are striving for the dream of being paid to make music and perform music. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. gets harder and harder every day which, to get which... paid to do that. But you have that unique experience in your your history, what you've done before, where you can probably offer some great advice. And, I mean, that kind of brings us to the next question where, you know, once you find these good people, these people you want to be on your team, how do you retain them? And you already said, where do you want to go? How can I help you? And I feel like you're in a great place to leverage your strengths in your network. Well, I think that it's important to – show your team that it's okay to graduate. Mm-hmm. It's okay to move on. Um, work, you know, make a commitment to working with us, work your hardest while you're with us, be a good person, be a great team member. And when it's your time to go, we celebrate it. Then, oh, you yeah. know, we, we do it together. And then I think that that just the power of that mechanism of seeing somebody move towards their dream. It's good for everyone in the organization. It's good for everyone to see that that's possible. I, I think one of the things that I hate the most is when people leave the restaurant on bad terms. Mm. Um, I, I say, I used to say this to my clients when I was an agent, um, the beginning of the end, the second that I know that our relationship is over is when you look at me and you say, what have you done for me lately? Mm. Once some, once you're in a, a working relationship with someone and they begin to feel that you're not doing anything for them or that you're, you slighted them in some way, the relationship is ostensibly over. You can just rip up the contract. The contract means nothing. So our job working together is to make sure that we don't get to that point, which takes communication. And that's the one thing that I have a lot of mileage on. You know, I'm 45 years old. If I had started a restaurant at 25 years old, I would never have understood how important all of that communication is to building a team and running a team because it's okay for all of us to have dreams. And I want everyone that comes to work for me that has dreams to attain those dreams. But while we work together, we have to communicate so that there's none of that. What have you done for me lately? Awesome. I love it. So the next question I have for you, you're giving us amazing advice. Uh, The next question I have for you is on resources. Is there a book, an entrepreneurial book or a hospitality book or a business book that you think is a must read for anybody getting into this industry? Um, I think if you're going to work in a restaurant, you have to be a creative person. Mm -hmm. And And you have to accept that you are a creative person. So I have this book that I have um, really gone back to again and again and again. And I said earlier in our interview where I said that I think the one word that describes me is that I'm a connector. Mm-hmm. And I got to that through this book. It's called The Highest Goal. And it was written by a gentleman named Michael Ray, R-E-Y. And it was the New York Times bestseller about 10 years ago. And what makes Michael Ray interesting is that he was a um, – a professor at Stanford back when Bezos and Jobs were coming through the ranks at Stanford. So his class was called Creativity in Business. So he taught 
nerdy engineers how to be creative. Wow. And his job was to take these programmers and to give them a perspective of, first, you have to know who you are. When you know who you are and you stick close to that, no matter what you do, you will be successful. So I've taken that with me in everything I've done, and I've made sure that whatever it is that I'm doing, does it feel right for who I really am, and can I succeed in this modality by being who I am? So that really just held held me very true to my path. There's so much weight in what you're saying right now. One thing I've learned just from listening to to you and past guests who are sharing similar advice to you is, I mean, really what it comes down to is being a great person, having that clarity in what makes you you, and then making your restaurant an extension of who you are, telling your your story of your why, your purpose, what you why you do what you do, and that's such a huge part of the restaurant industry. I mean, telling that story and getting that brand across, which kind of is a great segue into the next question, uh, which is in regards to marketing. So what's one piece of marketing advice that you have for us? Let's see. I think you, first of all, you have to have a story. Mm -hmm. You have to know what your story is and you have to think about it. You can't just, you have to be very deliberate in what that story is. Mm -hmm. Um, My story has unfolded. Um, through time, but I have deliberately created a dialogue for telling that story. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. Not, you live intentionally. It, it's very deliberate. Yeah. And, you know, some people may think that that is um, in some way um, unauthentic because it is crafted, but I come from a world where if you're going to tell a story, it's got to be edited. <laughs> and so I, I believe in that, and, and I'm always coming back to where is my story now? What, what's interesting about where I am right now? How can I have to tell that story to other people that will draw them to come experience what it is that we're trying to create? So I, I feel like I'm, I guess, a hybrid type of chef and restaurant owner in that I'm not in the kitchen all the time. Um, I have an incredible culinary team that helps me to um, bring my vision to life. But when I open the ramen shop, I'll be back on the line for six months. But I'm really like the CEO of the whole thing. And I'm the eyes and ears. And I make sure that everyone inside the organization has their own story Mm. and that they're telling their story and that all of our stories are aligned. Mm. Because when you allow people to tell their own story from within your your family, um, people that you spend time with every day, then they're empowered and they're happy. And so I guess I'm the head storyteller. Mm-hmm. That's my role. Awesome. Can you think of a resource that, where we can send the listeners to learn how to craft their own story? Um, yes. A notebook. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you have to write every day. I write every single day to I, myself, to other people, and I've done it since I was 10 years old. It's, it's something that you have to do. I mean, um, you pick a time, same time every day, whether you write two sentences or two pages. It doesn't matter. But it's the modality of just writing and starting to get comfortable with talking about yourself to yourself 
And then more than that, being able to go back and see how you felt two weeks ago. Mm. There's documentation. Because our, our world moves so fast that we lose perspective. The only way that you can keep perspective on yourself these days with everything moving so fast is to document it. Mm-hmm. And that is so valuable to be able to go back and say, you know, like, today I feel actually this way about this. Yeah. And then I can go back into my, my um, book and see that two weeks ago I felt very differently about it. Okay, well, why do I feel differently about it now than I did then? Oh, oh it's because I learned because of that. Mm-hmm. So it's that system of that internal system of checks and balances that really, really works for me. And I really try to promote people that work for me to do the same thing because if you're a creative person, you have to make room for the future. But the past is still so important to everything that you do. Awesome. And there's so much value and so much um, significance. Like when you write something down, there's some crazy figure like you're X many times more likely that, you know, to actually do something about it. Like things happen when yep. you write it down, which is, I can't remember the figure, but it's, it's worth writing things down if you want to start making progress in your life. And uh, one yeah, tool it's powerful. Yeah, I can think of if you uh, that's helped me consistently write. I don't do it every morning, but I really have gotten better about writing is I use a journal called Day One, uh, which is an app mm-hmm. that you use. I, like if you're uh, in the, like a, an Apple person like I am, you can do it on your phone, on your desktop, on your laptop, on a, like anywhere you are. That app follows you, and you can, and you can chronicle or you know uh, write out your thoughts for that day. So there's no excuse to not do it. Like you don't have to have that leather bound journal with you. Like as long as you have your phone, you you can do a journal yep. entry. So it's really cool. It's called uh, Day One. Well, you can you can do it vocally too. Like oh, yeah. back in the day when I was an agent and I would be out and about and meeting people and you know say that I'm at a huge networking event and I meet someone and I have an idea. I would literally go into the bathroom and get the voice recorder out and talk into my phone. <laughs> and so awesome. that I, next day I had that information and, you know, this could be a few drinks in at that point. Right. Yeah. And so then the next day when I would follow up with that person and I would have the exact information of what they said, Oh my God, they thought I was infallible. They're like, how did you remember that? Oh, well, man. I went into the bathroom and I talked into my phone. <laughs> I will snap myself out of bed sometimes if I'm laying, you know, that time when you're in bed, you're about to fall asleep and you get oh, like, yeah. this idea and you're like, I have to write this down now because if I don't, I might not remember like, <laughs> so I can totally, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next question I have for you is on the topic of technology. Are there any technologies you're leveraging in the front of house or back of house or in just trying to get the word out? Like, there's just so much we can leverage today with tools and resources out mm-hmm. there. We're just trying to funnel it mm-hmm. all to one spot. So what's some recommendations you have for us? Um, internally, with my team, we are into a program called Wonderlist, and we Ooh. use that because – it is a, a, it's an app and a program that allows us to build lists for one another and keep each other, um, I can keep tabs on everybody's to-do list. They can add things to my list, I can, you know, and vice versa. And that's really nice because it, um, it makes our, our team transparent. And <clears throat> I don't have to call someone up and be like, hey, did you do that thing today? I can mm-hmm. see it. Yep. Um, and, and so we can be much more efficient if we don't have to ask about those types of things. Yeah. From a marketing standpoint, I would say that um, we are still pretty old-fashioned, I guess, in that we rely very heavily on that email list. 
Mm-hmm. And we we keep that list really warm. We talk to them, even if we don't have anything going on. And we try to make sure that um, we're responsible about how often we send it and that when we send it, it has value. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> our open rates are extraordinary. Our open rates are over 30%. Wow. So people are really um, – they're super fans. We're creating super fans. And, and that really travels with us. And don't underestimate that and cater to those people. Give them extras. Um, give them the opportunity to be the first ones in the restaurant when it opens. Give them the opportunity to um, have VIP experiences in your restaurant because it's those super fans that become your marketers. Mm-hmm. Awesome advice. This is all. I mean, what do you use to manage your email? I mean, can I ask that? Was there anything that you're? Yeah, just Mailchimp. Mm-hmm. You know, but we come together as a team to um, come up with ideas for the uh, the weekly newsletter and what we're going to send out. And sometimes we'll skip a week if we don't feel that we have enough to really say something. Mm-hmm. So you know, right now for Otaku, for example, it's, it's definitely gotten down to like biweekly because we're just in construction on the new ramen shop and everyone's on pins and needles about when we're opening. So we're trying to have a different dialogue with people right now to keep them from asking us when the ramen shop is opening. <laughs> awesome. There's some great advice in there just from, like you said, making sure your emails are intentional to offering you know special deals to those people who are opening your emails. A lot of little good secrets in there in that, that answer. So thank you. Uh, the next question I have for you, we're almost done, is if you could just go back in time and give yourself one piece of business advice, what would it be and why? Um, I think the piece of advice I would give myself is it takes time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've worked working in advertising. Everything moves at the speed of light. You know, you're making a 30-second commercial in two days and then it's over. Mm-hmm. And Restaurants take time. It takes time to build teams. It takes time to hit your stride. Um, it takes time to build a consistent flow of people through your restaurant where you know that your Tuesday night's going to make X amount. That does not happen overnight. And if it does, it probably won't stay that way. So prepare for that financially. Know that it's going to take time and don't relent from your, you know, obviously you want to watch costs, but one of the trickiest things about owning a restaurant is capital and operating capital is everything. Making sure that you're in a position where you know that you can have a little bit of dry powder available to you if things go a little bit slower than you think they're going to go at first. And that happens to everyone. And go easy on yourself about it. We've been really tough on ourselves about that because, you know, with Otaku, everything happened so fast and was so splashy every time we did it. And with Little Octopus, it's been wonderful. People have received it extremely well. But it's it's growing at a maturity rate that is very normal to the industry. It doesn't feel normal to us because that's not what we're used to. Mm-hmm. But we've had to learn to accept that and prepare for that. Awesome stuff. Great stuff. It takes time. I love it. So the the last question I have for you is if there was one question I could have asked you, what would it be and why? Mm. Um, I find that a lot of people ask me um, why I like to do so many things. You know, most people 
think you choose a career and that's what you stay at for the rest of your life. <clears throat> but for me, this I love changing modalities. And maybe I will be in hospitality for the rest of my life. But um, I, I find that it's really exhilarating to jump mm. from one career to another. And by no means is it something that I actually sat up one day and said, I think it's time for me to change careers. It just happens. Um, I think what shocks me is that I see so many young people really confused about what do I do? I don't know what to do. Where do I go? It's almost as if they have too many choices. If you, if you just get deliberate and you start looking for the doors, they present themselves. Mm. And then you just got to start walking through those doors. <laughs> Be willing to fail to succeed. Awesome stuff. Great advice. Great way to wrap up the episode. Uh, and we wrap up every episode by just calling somebody out. Who's one indie restaurant professional you admire and think would make a great guest mentor on the show like you have for us today? Oh, I think Alon Shia. Alon is part of the, the best group, like we've talked about a couple uh, of times. Um, he's a, his, originally from Israel. He lives in New Orleans. He's just opened a fantastic restaurant called Shia, which is Israeli and Mediterranean food. And um, he won a James Beard Award this year. He has such a refreshing perspective on the industry and has just got a lightheartedness. And he's just a, he radiates. He's the kind of person that you just want to be around. Awesome. And he's taken just as many hits as anyone in the industry has. Yet he's still, I've never heard a negative thing come out of his mouth. Wow. Alon Shia, I am coming after you to be a guest on the show. I can't wait. I hope you accept the invitation. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to be a guest mentor on the show. Let the folks at home know how we can connect to pick up the conversation, or maybe they want to come work for you someday. Uh, what's the best way to, to find you? Absolutely. There's contact information at popnashville.com. You can always reach out to us. Um, the info at popnational.com is an email that we all check. Um, so if you want to reach out to us, that's the best way, or you can reach out to me on social media. I am always there. Awesome. I'll have links to how to connect with Sarah, links to all the products and services and books we spoke about and a recap to all of her advice in the show notes. Just go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash session 182 you'll find all the links uh sarah again thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest mentor you had some great actionable advice and there's no questioning you're unstoppable (laughs) thank you very much i enjoyed it (laughs) cheers All right, there is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable, and Sarah Gavigan was an awesome guest. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your stories. You are a great storyteller, and just giving us your advice. It was totally actionable. And what really stuck out to me in today's interview was your your way to live intentionally and to just not take any step without knowing where you're placing your foot and knowing how that step is going to help you get to the next level in your life. And you're always so intentional. And I love how you just talk about being deliberate. And when you look up the definition of deliberate, it says done consciously and intentionally. And you do everything and you tell the story and it's a way to just be 
so intentional with your life and to show others like what you are on this earth to do. And I think we, we can all learn from that. And one other thing that was an obvious huge takeaway from this interview was the power of scaling and starting small and working your way up to something incredible. Uh, pop-ups are something I'm learning more about, something that's really starting to take off. And there's so much potential with pop-ups because of the little overhead to get started in comparison to opening a huge brick-and-mortar restaurant. Um, and it's, like she says, a great way to build that uh, you know, to put that sweat equity in and to create that name and to, to develop a rapport and trust in your community and to, to get out there and to get that exposure and to surround yourself with like-minded people. There's no reason why you wouldn't consider doing this or maybe uh, a food truck is your, your plan. But I think the biggest lesson to take away from this is to start small and to know, like she says, like her last piece of advice, that it's going to take time and to be ready to give it that devotion and that time to eventually get to where you want to go. Um, I mean, perfect sponsor for today's show on deck because this is a tool we can use to scale. I mean, you start off with that pop-up concept maybe give it a year or two to like she says get that brand out there develop your brand and network and then you'll be eligible to get a loan with on deck um and scale and like you don't have to go for that huge dream concept from the gates just you know go from a pop-up to a food truck to counter service to full service and then to your dream restaurant but with tools like on deck you can know like she says know that it's going to take a long time and be ready to go on that long haul and over the years scale up and i think on deck is an amazing tool to do that again you can find everything we talked about in the show notes restaurantunstoppable.com slash session 182 uh thanks again to sarah for coming on the show and sharing all of your incredible stories and to really diving into pop-ups and how we can leverage that concept that business plan that model to be successful and uh like always do please do connect with me dave was a great example he said hey eric i want to learn about pop-ups i went and i found a super successful person that went and developed their brand their restaurant group off of pop-ups um so if you have any questions or interests or a topic to be discussed i will go that extra mile to get you the answers dave i hope you found value in today's episode as i hope all of you found value in today's episode don't be afraid to reach out to me eric at restaurant unstoppable that's eric with a c find me on social media i'd love to connect please like me on facebook uh, if you want to support the show the best way to support the show is to leave a five-star review on itunes and stitcher radio um, i have a support page on the website restaurant unstoppable.com slash support any small contribution you can make uh, will really go a long way with getting the show uh, really out there and, and for me to provide more tools for you more resources for you to become unstoppable and lastly just uh, you know spread the word tell your friends that this resource exists alright I will I will shut up now we are over an hour uh, alright <laughs> I can't stop talking sometimes I guess until next time peace out Thank you.